Welcome back to Basic Brain Heart, the show where we celebrate and interrogate creatives of all stripes. I'm Hannah Camacho. Hey, wherever you're finding us online, don't forget you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way you can be sure not to miss an episode. A song you hear behind me right now is I Fight For You, and it's by this week's guest, composer Sean Patterson. And whether you realize it or not, you've probably heard Sean's work. He wrote the tune and lyrics for Everything is Awesome, which of course was a fantastic part of the Lego movie, and has done a lot of other work, um, work for Robot Chicken, as well as you may have heard his work on Puss in Boots, which is a current Netflix series and a big project that's taking up a lot of his time. Um, so he's got quite the varied repertoire, if you will, and um, had a fabulous conversation with Sean about his thoughts regarding why so many soundtracks these days have such a similar vibe and um, what he does when he gets writer's block. Among many other things, Sean's very passionate and intellectual, and I find that's a great combination. Um, Another great piece that we decided to add was some of Sean's work. So we sprinkled some of his songs throughout the podcast so you can get a taste for other things he's done that you may not have heard. Make sure you stay tuned all the way to the end of the show because Sean provided me with um, his version of Let's Get Nuts, which was considered for the Lego Batman movie. It's a really fun song, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sean Patterson. Sean, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for taking some time to chat with me. Uh, Before we jump into all the many questions I have about music and your uh, approach, I would love to hear um, a little bit about your background. We don't have to belabor this, but could you just quickly tell me kind of where you come from and and how you got uh, into music? Yeah, I was... um born in a very small rural town in central Massachusetts. And so there was not a lot of music that came through the area or we were exposed to. There was certainly no classical or jazz. Hmm. Um, Most of my earliest exposures to music um, came through television and film. Oh, nice. I mean, um, I used to watch old Bugs Bunny, old TV shows, Six Million Dollar Man, really old stuff because I'm a fossil. (laughs) And uh, that was my real introduction to music. I noticed the stuff like, uh, you know, Star Trek with Alexander Courage's music and uh, Lost in Space and just bizarre stuff I was really drawn to early on. But I was a guitar player. I got into music um, actually because I saw Steve Martin on television. Uh, playing really well and I got into banjo and I did my best um, you know at getting really good at that but eventually I lost interest and got into guitar and piano and I was writing and just you know eventually was finding that there was nothing you know years and years later I mean there was nothing uh, in the way of writing gigs that I could find around Massachusetts you know Boston had kind of dried up a little bit as a music town and um, I wasn't quite ready to live in New York because I just didn't have a connection to it in any way. So I started eventually, you know, being drawn mm. to coming to L.A. and um, looking for the writing gigs that I couldn't find. Now, did you uh, immediately start looking for animation writing gigs? Was that what you were drawn to immediately? Or how did you end up kind of getting into that space specifically? Early on when I was starting to write, uh, you know, music I wasn't really drawn to animation. I mean, of course, as a kid, Bugs Bunny was was the end-all, be-all for me. Uh, Carl Stalling as a composer, I just thought, you know, the way he wove songs and score together was just absolute brilliance. Mm. But honestly, I was never... 
I never would have even believed I was going to be writing uh, music for animation. And oh, to this really? day, it's not like, um, you know, I seek out animation gigs. People just seem to hire me in animation. And a lot of that, mm. I know, comes from, um, you know, in the early 90s, I worked in some animation studios as a PA because when I got out to L.A., you know, I had already been working as a, a session guitarist and I was writing, but I wasn't earning any money as a writer yet. So... Um, I got jobs mm. to just help build up a studio and pay the rent while I was hustling music and stuff gotcha. when I got here. So, um, you know, I worked at the I worked on Ren and Stimpy, um, and I got to know a lot of directors there. And when Ren and Stimpy eventually folded, um, you know, they had all heard my stuff for years. I had sold them things. I'd been doing film trailer work and this and that while I was uh, working as a PA and a driver and such for some of these animation studios. So when Ren and Stimpy folded. I was able to, um, you know, have these connections, and a lot of these directors that started getting their own projects would start huh. hiring me. Interesting. And um, which led me to my first animated series, and I just never stopped. You know, when, um, I never sought out the genre, but um, uh, it sort of sought me out, I guess. That's kind of a happy coincidence. Um, and I've heard quite a bit of your work, and it's I, I can't get over how different it all is you're not you know pigeonholed into a particular style per se um what do you think informed your sort of musical fingerprint um is there anything specific that you attribute that to um i've had a lot of experiences like a lot of people uh, throughout my lifetime that have affected me i'm sure in a musical way um you know i kind of threw myself into music as a young kid um at the sudden uh, death of my father. And so I sort of buried myself in music wow. at that time. And I'm, you know, I have no doubt that a lot of the inner anguish that was going on um, as a result of his death just translated into the way I played sure, and the way I yeah. wrote. And to this day, it, you know, I'm sure it, I carry some of that with me. Um, in the early days of my career, you know, I was sleeping on people's floors. I had no money whatsoever. I was taking every dollar a I could make artist, um, yeah. from whatever day job I held to build myself a small studio. And, um, you know, I'm sure all that played into a part of how I wrote music and um, maybe being very expressive in that because, you know, life was... Uh, you know, it was pretty hard at times, the challenges of, of being able to get to the point where you want to be. And I know a lot of people face this. It's, it's nothing exceptional for me. But, you know, just um, I let that sort of come out in my, in my music. And uh, I think it still does to this day. It's certainly not anything I would want to uh, slow down or stop, um, you know, because that's kind of who I am. And I guess I just let it come out. That's interesting. I love that you don't necessarily practice restraint on that. You know, that's kind of what fuels your uh, creativity. Um, and I'm sure in the early days, you worked extremely hard to be competitive and, and you know, create work that was something directors uh, wanted to work with. Um, how did you and how do you go about honing your craft as music isn't something you learn once and you're done? You, it's something that's an ongoing process. As far as honing my craft goes, I mean, I just constantly read books on film scoring on uh, story in general, on characters and story arc. And, you know, I work at orchestration. I study when I can. Um, I listen. 
I buy soundtracks constantly, and I'm constantly experimenting, and I'm constantly working at um, how how can I improve and how can I push myself. And you know, quite honestly, I don't see that as, as being something I would ever stop doing um, because it's it, none of this is about anything but you know me sort of pushing myself to be the best uh, writer of music that I can be and. Uh, I just pour myself into it. It's and it's more than just book stuff, you know. It's not just about what you read in a book. I think there's a certain degree of um, vulnerability that all people that create, whether it's music or create anything that somebody can see or hear that's tangible, um, you put yourself on the line. You expose yourself, and to be able to be at a level where you're exposing yourself musically or artistically in any way. It either takes a great degree of uh, stupidity or braveness. <laughs> I'm not sure which, which one I have more of. I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination I'm brave, but <laughs> um, it's just it's putting yourself out there and, and not really caring so much. Sure. Uh, you know, what people think. I mean, of course I care what people think to some extent, but at the end of the day, yeah. I'm my own worst critic and I'm the guy pushing myself all the time to improve and if I let something go out of the studio that I don't feel proud about hmm. it bothers me and I, I really can't uh, do that too often because it, it does bug me to do that. Sure and I know that you take um, uniqueness and standing out really seriously um, and it seems like today when you hear a soundtrack whether it's paired with a feature or some sort of an episodic series it's really difficult to tell who's behind that. It's hard to see the fingerprint or the uniqueness. Um, what do you think is driving the copycat approach that so many studios seem to be promoting these days as far as music is concerned? You know, that's a great question. Um, and we hear a lot of this. Um, I think it's a combination of studios not wanting to take great musical risks. Um, there's a lot of identity has changed Um in terms of the way scores sound these days, you know, there's a lot of sample libraries that are available that are loop-based or textural-based or they have big hits or accents, and anybody can buy those and anybody can use those, as opposed to the olden days, and I mean 30, 40 years ago maybe, you know, you had guys like Jerry Goldsmith that were in the studio, and their recording quality alone would sound very, very distinct. You know, the way the original Planet of the Apes score um, was recorded was incredibly influential to me. Um, Jerry Goldsmith was using all kinds of bizarre percussion, and everything about that was, was distinctly him. But there's a homogenization that's going on where you hear a lot of it in primetime television where you get a lot of these sort of textural things, sure, uh, pads yeah. pulsing. Dum, 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 and then like yeah. creepy accents and things that fade in, you know. <laughs> That's sort of like this sort of approach from almost, almost an advertising, ethereal. Okay. Um, that's two separate words there. But, I mean, an advertising world approach where everything's bigger, harder, louder. And then you get stuff that, you know, like I described, is more textural. It's also mm. a transition out of the way of orchestral scoring, which, you know, has seen some of its great days and it will continue to see them. But sometimes, you know, particular shows and projects don't call for... Um, that sort of sure. sound they call for something more ethereal or textural and and sort of submissive to the background of the uh, story 
and that's fine gotcha. too. That has its place. I think a lot of studios are afraid to take risks on having a really true identity of a sound, of a mm. musical score sound, um, and I think that's just the way it is. You can now find 20 to 50 guys that could probably do the same score and you wouldn't be able to tell who it was. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's, you know, the worst thing in the world. I just think it's a sign of the times of the way things have have moved, you sure. know, budget, um, budget restraints and expectations from studios and... Um, you know, like I said, uh, sample libraries being more available and uh, the trailer industry being, you know, where everything's bigger, harder, louder. And then, you know, stylistically, I think it's I think it's a sort of a storm of all those things. Understood. That makes a lot of sense. Along those lines, um, you, of course, wrote the song Everything is Awesome, which was a smash hit. Um, why do you think more films don't actually pursue that uh, big, big hit song, uh, that big original song? A, a lot of them will sort of rip off of existing music and make it fit the narrative. But why don't more of them pursue that everything is awesome moment and opportunity? I think a lot of films uh, lack original songs because... I, you know, it's a complicated subject. I've, I've, I've discussed this with music supervisors, with directors, with executives, and I think it's a complex issue. You get a director who maybe doesn't want an original song, and if that's the way it is, that's great. But in the case of the executive or the marketing division of a studio, assuming this is a large-budget production, if they want an original song in there, I would think they would say or strongly suggest to the director, while still respecting the director's vision, hey, this movie, want, we want it to have a hit song. And we want an original song. We don't want to just license something. So, you know, that's one, uh, one way and one, one reason how it could come about or how it doesn't come about. Um, sure. You know, studios in general, again, don't want to pay uh, songwriters. And I think it's a lot of it is, is oh, risk. Oh, yeah. You know, um, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, to license big hit songs to attach them into a movie. That's at least my understanding. I'm not sure. a licensing guy, but yeah. that's my understanding of it. And uh, sometimes that works great, and sometimes that is the way to go, hands down, you know? But there are so yeah. often uh, times where uh, uh, a movie, a hit movie that's unique or distinct, should have a hit, distinct, original song in it. Yeah, you know, it I play sense. a game ever since the Lego movie came out, and I was probably doing it beforehand, uh, to be honest with you, but I really do play a game now where when there's a hit animated movie, I say, what's the hit song? Um, and it doesn't have to be animated and comedy. It can be, a, you know, a ballad. It can be a, sure, um, yeah. a serious tune. Um, I just think it's really cool to have it in movies. And, and again, it doesn't always have to be in a film, but it's, it's a mystery to me why there's not more of it. It just doesn't make sense especially in kids' animated films. I mean, I think that's sure. that's such a huge market. And I think, as my girlfriend likes to say, studios are leaving money on the table yeah. when, they don't, uh, when they don't pursue it. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, it's a complicated animal, and uh, I don't pretend to have the answer to it, but I surely wish there were more hit songs in, in, uh, in films. There should be. Even in television series, there should be. ¶¶ 
they move aside when they see my ship or hear my thundering voice. The master of the oceans who leaves them all the choice. I battled every sailor as I sailed the mighty seas. With a cannon arm and hooks per hand, I've got them all making please. No Vikings or no mermaids are safe when I'm around. I've crushed them all, I chopped them down, and some I made drown. I build away whatever I need at any time I want. With skills as good, I must admit, it's time to really not want. So raise your glass to mantle beer, let's hear the peggity bang. So if you'd rather not join in, then take a nice walk on the plank. So sound a bell when you hear him yell, cause everyone will fear. The master builder of the sea, say hello to mantle beer. That's a really fun song. I love that one. Um, along those lines of, of having a hit original song paired with an animated film, or really any movie, um, have you seen any films taking musical risks that you really appreciated recently? As far as films taking musical risks, it's more common that I, that I see film scores that sound pretty predictable and pretty commonplace. Um, there have been some things that have come out that really grabbed my ear. I remember I saw Arrival, and oh, I thought yeah. Johan's score was really bold, and it had that really I bizarre agree. sound design, which, quite frankly, I haven't bought the soundtrack. Um, so I don't know if that, that low, creepy effect when we see the, uh, the alien spaceship, I don't know if that's in the sound design or within his score. Yeah, that's I tend a good to think question. it's within his score, and I'm hoping it is. But that, I thought that was brilliant. I love the mm. textures. I like everything about it. And I thought it fit brilliantly with the film. Um, that's not to say that I don't admire and respect the hell out of a lot of the scores that I do hear. Sure. Um, when I get to hear them and, and when I study them myself. But... You know, I just don't think there's a lot of massive risk-taking, and I certainly wouldn't point that as the fault of composers. I think I can go out on a limb here and speak for most of us, saying that we would love to take more risks. We would love to <laughs> yes. try uh, to push boundaries, musically Absolutely. speaking, within uh, the context of a score. But I don't think, you know, well, it's not that I don't think. I know for a fact. It's not really up to the composer. It really is ultimately sure. what the director conveys to the um composer in almost all of my experience i've never had a director come to me completely wide open with no no idea no preconceived notion or plan hmm. as to what they wanted their score to sound like and when they do they often reference something that already is in existence uh, you yes. do see a lot of experimental stuff with electronics and things like that and sample based libraries just just not enough of it and i think that's again i hope that's something that you know we see some more risks in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it sounds like a lot of composers that are in your shoes are kind of one-man bands, uh, pun intended. Um, you you have to not only write, but you have to sort of be your own biz dev team. Uh, what's your secret to keeping a steady paycheck? Do you have to just constantly relationship build um, in order to, uh, you know, of course, get work in the first place? Or does the work speak for itself? What Do you have a, a particular approach? Well, I'd say it's always a make the music speak for itself situation. Okay. Um, I always try to deliver the best I can. Yeah, that makes you sense. know, we're often working under crazy deadlines, limited budgets, and mm. the expectation is to come out sounding like, you know, John Williams or something <laughs> gigantic. So you do the best you can to deliver on that, and you hope that your work does speak for itself. But, you know, keeping a steady paycheck is, um, 
I don't know as if there's a secret. It's just endless pounding on doors. It's saying hello, introducing yourself. You know, um, having a great agent often helps. Mm. Um, and that's something I, I hope to, you know, attain at one point. Um, you know, sure. just kind of getting your name out there and, and, and hustling, you know. I still hustle just about as much as I probably ever did. Maybe I'm throwing my music around a little a little less these days but sure you know i still i still make sure people hear what i'm working on and i'm sure it's annoying to many of my director friends but you know when i finish something <laughs> i often like people to hear it and i i certainly don't expect uh criticism of any kind i just like sure. people to hear what i'm working on you know good bad or indifferent well that's I fair think it's important yeah i think when you create something naturally you want someone to hear it and appreciate it um, along those lines, you really write and listen to music just about every moment of every day. Do you find yourself craving silence? I would say I crave silence like a lion craves a steak. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when you work as much as I do, um, and I am grateful that I work that much, but there's a constant bombardment of sound. You know, you're hearing yeah. dialogue, sound effects, and you know, constantly experimenting with music and instruments and orchestration and this and that. And um, that that bombardment can be exhausting. So it's important to find little tricks uh, until you can sure. get silence. Tricks like turning off the dialogue once in a while, turning down the sound effects or eliminating them, you know, until you get your piece finalized. But sure. yeah, craving silence is, is pretty important. I mean, I ride a motorcycle. Um, I've been riding for years and years. And for me, um, having that quiet time alone in the helmet is, um, is pretty critical. And um, it's, it's great because that's the one time it's just sort of me all alone with a task, and I, uh, which is just navigating a motorcycle and focus, being focused on the road. And it's yeah. nice. And heavy earplugs help. But, um, yeah, silence <laughs> is critical. Really, really important. I can only imagine, um, and that's really interesting that you found that to be incredibly helpful uh, when you've just you've had enough and you need some inspiration. Um, taking a little bit of a turn here, uh, when it comes to the director relationship with yourself and you're working to um, really uh, capture their vision in sound form, but at the same time retain your own creative spark and uh, signature. How do you go about doing that and, and, and really uh, creating that balance? As far as uh, capturing a director's vision, um, it, it really it really depends a lot of times, I find, on the, on the nature of the director. I've worked with directors that are really relaxed and they um, put a lot of trust in you right away. And they will play you something as sort of a starting point or a leap off point. And they'll say, I want it to be kind of like this. Oh. And then they'll kind of step back and let you play with it. And as long as you kind of convey that general feel, the mood, the tone, the, maybe the tempo, you're good to go. Um, okay. Then I've had other directors that are very, very specific. And almost I've had guys so married to their temp music that it just it's a no win scenario oh, because you can't awful. really recreate the temp. You know, you really just have to listen to what what they're saying and look for the clues. Some directors gotcha. also can't speak with specificity about musical terms, and that's completely fine. Um, I've had great sure. situations where directors can't speak in terms of specifics, but in in that inability to do so, it, it almost opens up freedom to experiment. Hmm. You know, you just really have to listen to what the director's saying and... 
and be open to what their vision is. Because at the end of the sure. day, your job is to please them and please the story. Uh, it's to serve the story. Um, so you, you, you value that. You know, if you don't place value on that, I don't think you'd work that much. Um, you, you've got to really listen to the, the, the minutia of what the director is saying. Sure. Because at the end of the day, that's everything. Um, yeah. and, and bring their vision to life. Uh, you know, lead it out of them if you can. Suggest things to them mm. if they're open to it. And, uh, you know, cross your fingers. That sounds pretty work intensive. Um, you mentioned during our pre-call uh, that even getting to the feedback stage is tricky these days. So, you know, you may submit music or um, have an idea and uh, try to get it, you know, to the ears of the, the right decision makers. But even getting feedback back, you said, is, is really tricky. Why do you think that is? And is that different really than, than it used to be? As far as getting feedback goes, um, a lot of times it's with songs and um, you submit things and you may not hear anything back. I've had things land in films where they and in television shows where they're going to be in the final and all of a sudden I get a call from my attorney who says, oh, we have a contract here to look over. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that they, it just went straight in and there was no negotiating. That's crazy. Uh, no, no, no feedback whatsoever. Um and then I've had other instances where um, things are just not in the movie or TV show and you don't hear a word. Oh. And I've always found that a little bit strange, but I also try to see it from the perspective of the person you're playing it for. If it's a director, yeah. they've, they're making a hundred million choices, you know, and they Absolutely. have pressure of the studio on their back. The studio and the director have pressure to get a big hit and bring in you know, bring in money um, for the project that they're doing, unless it's a complete independent sure. and it was made with, uh, you know, a GoFundMe or something and then money is not an <laughs> issue. But typically that's not the case. You know, everybody has different flavors and tastes. I, I equate it with food. You know, one, one small seasoning could change somebody's opinion about a dish or some food that they want to eat. Really, in many ways, music is no different. So if you have a director that can't speak in specificity, he may not be able to articulate what he doesn't like about it. So instead of trying to sure. do so, he may just move on. And that's just sort of the nature of the beast again. I think it's just the way things are. Um, I don't really know if it's gotten worse in getting feedback. I just think okay. that you can't expect it too, too much. And if you do, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Just, you know, the, the, the goal is always is just keep writing keep pitching your work and, and, you know, just keep going for it and have confidence in what you're doing and, and enjoy what you're doing. That's, a, I think, a huge part of it. Sure. Um, and out of our discussions, um, you kind of got me to thinking about how, you know, an individual songwriter may partner with uh, perhaps the overall film composer. So in the case of the Lego movie and Everything is Awesome, you were not the overall uh, film composer, but you did write that one song. Can you maybe discuss the difficulties of a composer who maybe, you know, was writing for the rest of the feature, but did not write Everything is Awesome, and then opting to not quote that song melody in the rest of the film score? Um, I'd love to hear really your thoughts on that. I think when there's a hit song in a film, or if a film is trying to have a hit song, I, for the life of me, don't understand why a composer doesn't quote parts of those uh, parts of the song's chorus or the melody of the verse or something, just so it sort of harkens back to it. And by the time you hear this hit song or what yeah. they hope will be the hit song, 
you're you're already touched by it. Your your ear and your heart, hopefully your soul, hopefully, has felt this motif coming. Yeah. And then the song delivers it, and I think that's a powerful combination. Now again, do all films need to do the, do it this way? Absolutely not. There's no one end all sure. be all approach, but I think more often than not, if you're going to have a hit song in a film, quoting the melody somewhere within the musical underscore, I think it's a brilliant uh, technique. Yeah, I think it's it a brilliant sense. storytelling technique as far as the music goes, both song and score. And I think it's a hell of a marketing tool. Um, I don't believe we did that in the Lego movie. Um, I think it should have been. I don't know why Mark wouldn't have quoted the, <laughs> yes. um, the melody within the score. Um, I don't know if they will do that in Lego 2, the Lego 2 movie. I think they should, but I don't know if they will. Uh, sure. Other films, you hear it all the time. I mean, I'm trying to think of an instance where there's a hit song. You know, Titanic is a great example. I've used it a oh, couple yeah. of times. Um, when I've lectured on this subject at Cal State, you know, it's a great way of taking um, this idea. It's my understanding that James Horner wrote the melody within the score first and then crafted the song out of that, that was told to oh, me wow. fairly recently, and I didn't know that. I assumed it came the other way around. I know Alan Menken will do it a lot. Um, I think he did it in Little Mermaid. I think he did it in Aladdin, um, where you hear the song, and he'll quote it through it. Probably other things he's done. I think he's brilliant at that. I think he's probably one of the best, if not the best. And I think it's great, and I love hearing it when when that happens in big movies and small movies. I just think it's a, it's a terrific technique. I don't know why, if there's an issue with a director not thinking of that. I don't know if it's the composer not wanting to quote somebody else's material because then they don't get credit on the cue sheet. I, I don't really know what it is. It could be just personal preference. Like I said, there's always, there's always so many ways to approach all this. But I think that is something that it would be really cool to hear more of that. But, you know, it is what it is, right?
Watch me go boom! These songs are so much fun. I'm loving it. Um, along the lines of, of course, writing and writing and writing to no end. Is there such a thing as songwriter's block? And if there is, how do you go about beating it? Yeah, on occasion, I'll have a songwriter's block or score block, you know, from writing in general. Um Sometimes the easiest solution is just to get up and walk away and not think about it for a few minutes. Gotcha. Time away is, is often good if you can get it. Um, jumping on to another moment, if as a score composer, a lot of times I'll just jump to another scene and I'll hmm. find something that's almost utility where you go, okay, here's a romantic moment. So you're going you're gonna to score something in this manner. And then you kind of, you know, uh, creatively drift away from the sure. moment that gave you writer's block. Isolation for me is always great. You know, being in my being on my motorcycle and being alone in that helmet, I've had a lot of funny instances where I've pulled over on the sides of freeways and roads and uh, semis screaming by me, and I'm singing a, a an idea or talking about an idea <laughs> into my phone. Uh, it's it's super dangerous, but uh, yes. that's that's one way to beat it. It's worked for me. Now that'd be fun to watch. <laughs> Um, so again, we've talked about how seriously you take, uh, uniqueness and creativity musically. What do you think it's going to take for both yourself and really others in your shoes, um, to connect with directors who are willing to take musical risks and take music really in different directions and not just directors, but also studios, because again, we know that oftentimes that comes down from the studio as well. Um, that's a great question. You know, I'm not really sure I have an answer for that. Um, probably independent, probably independent, uh, film and television. Well, there probably wouldn't be independent television, but independent film where things are bound for festivals and there's, there's, there's the desire to, to break out and be different and break the mold and, and uh, take chances, musically speaking. Sure. Um, and that would just take a director with a strong vision and the pairing with the proper composer that is like-minded and wants to approach it differently. And that's not to say it should be different for different sake. Yeah. But if the room and the possibility for experimentation is there, that's the setting, I think, where it would probably yeah, best why be not? served. Yeah. Let's be honest. If you've got a gigantic superhero movie, say $200 million movie, whatever it is, you know, they're not going to be really taking huge risks in the sound of the score. It's going to sound probably like something we've heard before. I mean, (laughs) it's just the way it is. Um, So I think it has to be the opposite approach, smaller, boutique, independent um, film projects that can take those chances because there's not somebody's money on the line and the expectation is is more just geared towards creative sure. uh, expression. Yeah, that's what I think. I mean, it, that sound it, it sounds fair, and that makes perfect sense. Um, and uh, you know, talking about young composers who are talented and willing to take some musical risks, when you do meet with young talent, 
and they're hoping to make it in your line of work. You've got some years of experience. You've, you know, had to fight and claw your way to where you are. What kinds of advice do you typically give them when they ask you for some? I tend to say the really cliche stuff um, without destroying their dreams. <laughs> How nice <laughs> like, of you. <laughs> I'll just basically tell them, you know, believe in what you do. And you really need to be enjoying what you do because the music industry is is pretty cold and it's pretty cruel. It certainly can be, you know, and there are more times than not when there are no awards, no award Mm. shows, there's no paychecks, there's not even a project. So if you're not sitting and creating and sitting and writing, then you're probably in the wrong business. So my advice in general is to love what love what you do. And have fun doing it. I mean, if it seems like it's constant work or a constant chore, it's probably not your line of work. That's not to say that it doesn't, you know, it it can't be a grind. I mean, television series, any composer will tell you, most often television series are brutally, uh, brutally rough. You know, the schedules, the expectations, it's just a a machine almost. Yeah. But you've got to believe in yourself and you've got to be able to be confident. You've got to be able to hold a meeting, carry yourself. Uh, with confidence and, and, you know, walk that razor's edge of not sounding like an asshole. <laughs> Stay true to who you are. Keep plugging away, regardless if you have a hit, you don't have a hit. If you love it, ride it out. If you don't, find something that makes you happy and pursue that. That's really, uh, at the end of the day, I guess, my advice. That's super, super solid advice. It's a good mix of realism, but also hope. So I appreciate that. Uh, anything exciting you're working on these days that you can talk about? I'm still scoring on the Adventures of Puss in Boots, and uh, we nice. wrap that in November. I've, you know, I'm pitching on a few different uh, series here and there. I recently wrote a song for the Justice League film. You know, this and that, just pitching stuff here and there. Nice. I've been approached by a couple of the studios to write some new songs. Um, for upcoming animated films, nothing really I can discuss, but sure, you know, there's fun. always something going on. And if there isn't, um, I'm, I'm always looking for, uh, the next project I can get involved with. Most certainly something that is exciting to me or something that is, seems like it'd be a lot of fun. That's awesome. It sounds really uh, like you've got a lot going on. If uh, people want to get in touch with you or follow what you're up to these days, uh, where can people find you? And is there anything you'd like to plug online? People can find me on Twitter at Sean M. Patterson. And they can always just go to SeanPatterson.com, my website. Um, we don't update that too, too much. Sure. Uh, but on occasion, when there's something uh, big happening, we'll put some updates on there. Um, and that's it. Thank you for having me, Hannah. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks for stopping by, Sean, and also for providing all the wonderful musical tidbits today. Listeners, don't stop listening now because you're in for a treat. Uh, Sean provided us with his version of I'm the Batman, Let's Get Nuts, which was considered for the Lego Batman movie. Time for a dance party. Let's get nuts, yeah, yeah.